like a lion roar. Roar! <laughs> and open the door to join us for the 19th meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm Metatarsal Melange Mike. And I'm Skink Snow Thrower Meredith. We meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station <laughs> to talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for in unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow. So saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia. Well, hey there, Meredith. Hey, Mike. We're back in the clubhouse. Back in the clubhouse. We've had a little, um, some time in the eastern outpost of yes, the Dalmatian Station. We have. Now we're back in the Dalmatian Station Classic. Dalmatian Station Classique. Classique, yes. Meredith, I just heard a sniffle. Do you have the coronavirus? I sure don't. I still think I'm getting over something from a couple weeks ago, though, mm. which could have been coronavirus, because actually all the symptoms were what coronavirus symptoms are saying that they are. Flu-like? Flu-like. This awful cough and fever, but coronavirus wasn't really like in the country at that point, beyond sure. Washington. But, you know, sure. who knows? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Kind of a wild, uncharted world out there. I know. It's a little crazy. Somebody said to me yesterday, she's like, I think it's kind of exciting, don't you? And I was like, I mean, kind of. I am kind of curious to see what all is going to happen. I don't like the death. Yeah, exciting isn't the right word for it. Like, you know, it's a global medical crisis that's overwhelming our medical resources. Right. And really exposing a lot of flaws in the way the United States is choosing to deal with this. Anywho, I mean, it is interesting, I think, to see how this will all play out and logistically, I mean, also like what it's doing to the stock market. It's just insane. It's very new to me what this looks like. Yeah, it's definitely a strange thing to watch. Our friends, the Pangolin, perhaps at the center of this, it seems to be, I've heard reports that there's something about a bat That the virus may have originated in a bat or something and then transmitted through another animal. The intermediate host, I think, is what. I believe so. I didn't really read about this that much, but they were throwing out the pangolin as a possibility because it's killed for its scales so frequently and it's Mm -hmm. traded so much, and pangolin scales were available in this market. So I found another article that was like the pangolin responds that he has more diseases like this coming unless you leave him alone. Well, apparently pangolins in particular are the hosts of many kinds of coronaviruses already. Interesting. Yeah. And so they were tested, I think, and one was 99% similar to what they're calling this like novel human coronavirus. Mm. But also animals have figured pretty largely in like a lot of these other scares. MERS is linked to camels. SARS was linked to civets. Those little cat-like creatures that we might know from coffee fame as being the ones that poop out the coffee beans. Yeah, the ones where people are like, oh, but there's coffee because the cat eats it and then it poops it out. It's flavored with the insides of the cat, which is, first of all, gross. And second of all, you're not going (laughs) to taste it because you're adding a bunch of coconut milk and sugar to it anyways. Exactly. So really, it's just an excuse to be cruel to the animal. Right. Like, leave the civet poop alone. They're just trying to 
do their thing. Eat their normal diet of coffee cherries. Civitously. Seriously. Yeah. Though a friend of mine at work and I were joking about, you know, this idea of like, buy this artisan coffee. It's shat and brewed in Brooklyn. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I guess that maybe a moment shouldn't go by where we don't recite the Pangolin promise in honor of our Pangolin friends who are receiving extra media attention in this coronavirus moment. Our Our tongues tongues go go long. Our hearts hearts open open wide. In the, the same, same way, way we tear, tear open the places where termites hide. All hail King Keratin. I want some sort of prog treatment along the lines of like in the house of the Crimson King. <laughs> like, a, like a King Crimson tribute band called King, King Keratin, Keratin. Yes. but it's all pangolins. <laughs> yes. It's so cute. Oh my God. I had an exciting weekend. Yeah? I I was in Florida. <gasps> That's right. You went to like Animal Ground Zero. I sure did. And so I had a gig in Florida and I went down a couple days early to hang out with my mom who was vacationing there. So it kind of worked Fun. out perfectly. And she planned a swamp boat ride. <gasps> so we rode on one of those airboats with the big propellers on the back. Yes. And we saw alligators and we saw wrens and we saw signs about panthers and signs about panthers yeah it was crazy i've never really done anything like that before it was really fun and i got to hold an alligator (gasps) at one point and so i was curious i was like i asked the woman is this a squamate do you know and she didn't really know and so i had to look it up and it's uh crocodilia it's a different it's different than a squamate okay order they're the same rank on the taxonomy cheer gotcha ladder because I was like, is this a true lizard? Is an alligator a true lizard? And it's not. But I got to hold this little gator and it was Aww. like in my hands. It probably weighed like 35 pounds. It was very docile, very much just like, yo, what's up? It wasn't trying to do a chomp chomp. No, no chomp chomp. Chomp chomp free zone. But it was really <laughs> fun. And uh, there uh. were turtles there and there were a lot of chickens just clucking. I loved all the posts. Yeah. All the posts from the field. Yeah, the posts from the field. I'm trying to get better about doing Instagram stories, and they tend to be class A's related just because I feel like I see more birds than yeah. any other creature, I guess. They're out there. Yeah. They're just ripe for the storying. Yeah, it's fun. It's, you know, <clears throat> embracing like it. social media. I like it. Also, when I was in Florida, I saw a street sign for a road called Starfish Avenue. <laughs> And I went and I knocked on every single door on the street and told them that they should petition and change the name of their street to Sea Star Avenue. Sea Star Street. Yeah, or like (laughs) Echinoderm Crescent, maybe. (laughs) None of them were receptive to the idea. Damn it. I know. You know, maybe um, when you campaign for political office in Florida, you know, in the very near future, because I know this is a very present goal of yours. And how. You can... can you know, really make waves. I hope to make waves. <laughs> Me too. In the gentle swamp lands of Florida. <laughs> yeah, Everglades. No swamp rabbit sightings, by the way. Damn it. I think I was actually out of their territory. Florida's kind of like its own ecosystem. It's nuts down there. It's wild. It's just a swamp with two coasts. It's true. See some great pelican action, though, in Florida. Lots of things were named after pelicans. There yeah. was like Pelican Bay, Pelican Court, Pelican Crescent. Pelican Place. Pelican Place. Pelican Parkway. (laughs) Pelican Boulevard. A pelican pooped on my mom's car at one point. Good luck. It is good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I want to go on an animal adventure. I'm overdue. 
I'm really overdue for one. It was pretty fun, I have to say. And, uh, you know, it's nice to be around these creatures. And there's just so much life there where it's just like a lizard will just appear. And you're like, ah, you know, and then it scares yeah. away. Team Skinky Day is strong in Florida. I know this. Is that right? Yeah. Well, well, like where we used to vacation on the Gulf Coast, it was just skinks, skinks, everywhere skinks. That's right. Lousy with skinks. Because you said you're, that's where your mom was like, oh, that's a skink a day. Or she said it's a skink. It's a skink. She didn't say yeah. skink a day. Right. But we say skink a day. Skink a day into skink a night. Where you can skink a sled. <laughs> well, I guess let's, uh, what do you say we just kick into it? Let's do it. Ye old taxonomy cheer. Ready? Okay. Taxana you. Taxana we. Taxana whom? Taxana me. Kingdom. Animalia. Creature pals. Phylum. Cordata. Serpentine spines. Class. Reptilia. Cold blood fiery spirit. Order. Squamata. Big hemipene energy. Family. Viperidae. Long hinge fins or deep penetration. Jesus. Crotalus. It's a maraca with a face. Species. Crotalus atrox. Lots of snake bites in the U.S. It's the western diamondback rattlesnake. <laughs> is that a rattler in the distance? Look out. He's coiled and ready to strike. So it's a rattlesnake. It's the species of rattlesnake. I don't know if this was really, um, <laughs> I was able to get this out very clearly in the taxonomy cheer, but it's the species responsible for the most snake bites in the U.S. Okay. The western Diamondback rattlesnake. So it was a squamata. Squamata. So I love that you were talking, we were doing squamata talk right before this. Yeah, just perfect. a little squamate sesh. Yeah. And then after that, you said Vipiridae. Is that Vipiridae, right? Vipiridae, long hinged fangs for deep penetration. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so the vipers are a subset of snakes. Uh huh. Or of reptile, or like these specific reptiles. Because I think also in squamata, it's not just snakes, it's like lizards. Yeah. After, after squamata, there was another category that was serpentes, serpentes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That divided it into snakes and non-snakes, I guess. I don't know. That didn't show up in this particular... Well, it's that's what I mean. It's like an infra-order. Oh, like a clade? Or, I... or a, yeah, infra-suborder? Uh, or yeah. maybe... A super family? Or a super family? <laughs> I don't know. So confusing. We're going to find out. Yeah, we'll figure it out. But I thought there was some stuff in here as a percussionist, Mike, you might appreciate in the taxonomy. So we've got the genus is Crotalus. Oh, like Crotales? Yeah. Do you want to describe what a crotale is? A crotale is like a, it's like a finger symbol with a specific pitch. Yeah. And so they're used a lot in like music from the 60s and 70s and beyond. Yeah. And it has a very bright, sharp, metallic sound with a lot of like clashing overtones. Yeah. So it would be used in music theater, say, like in an Aladdin sequence when they go to like a camel groove. Sure. And they need that like sparkle moment. They used will for those crotales. Those yeah. touches of exoticism. Touches of exoticism, yeah. And like just bright, sparkling, just yeah. so many clashing overtones. Totally. I love that. So it's actually Crotalus. So this genus comes from the Greek word for Crotalon, 
which means rattle or castanet. That's another percussion word. Yeah. Yeah. Like also the finger symbols, right? A typical castanet would be like a wooden clamshell shaped thing, like from Spain. A Spanish castanet. Like a Hernando's hideaway moment. (laughs) Exactly. That would, and actually, I was just talking the other day about this music from Morocco where they use metal castanets. So mm-hmm. I would say castanet implies wood or plastic. Cool. Keeping in this like interesting percussion journey. I'm there. We have the genus of Crotalus, but there's another genus called Cistrusus, like the Cistrum, which is an ancient Egyptian percussion instrument. It's a rattle. Sure. It's a little harder to describe, to pin down a definition of the cistrum also they exist in like west african instruments as well Mm -hmm. i would call something a cistrum if it had a handle to operate and it was like stick shaped sure metal rattly things yeah like you could take a piece of bamboo and split it down the middle like halfway Uh and hold on to the closed bit and then have it like open up and put a piece of wire and a bunch of old bottle caps on it sure i would call that a cistrum yeah exactly Totally. So we've got two species or two genus of these snakes. Genera. Genera. There it is. That are essentially kind of rooted in, you know, percussion, which is so fun because as we know, they've got rattles on their tails. Or as um, Anthony likes to say, it's a Morocco with a face. I like that. Which I think is really funny. <laughs> the the <laughs> Morocco with a face. Yeah. Yeah, so these guys live, um, you probably encounter them in the U.S. Southwest, but actually, like, they can extend as far east as, like, western Arkansas. Okay. And then all the way over to California, and then they go, like, as far north as Utah, like, down to northern Mexico. So it's a pretty big range. Sure. Of these bad boys. Mostly in mountain time and Pacific time, a little bit of central time. Yes, Exactly. They're actually able to live in all kinds of environments. So we would picture, I mean, think about all that that encompasses. Just, you know, think like western Arkansas all the way over to California and all the way up into Utah. I mean, we've got forested areas. We've got grasslands. We've got desert. They can hang out in a lot of different places. Very adaptable. The West is known for having those climates that are like on top of each other. Mm-hmm. I did mention that they're responsible for the majority of snake bites in these regions, but they do rattle to ward off any predators or threats, but they will strike when threatened. So let's talk rattles okay. a little bit. They're, it's just very interesting. I did not know. I was I wanted to do the rattlesnakes. I was just very curious about like how this mechanism of the rattle works. How does it form? Yeah. What's going on there? Yeah. How, d- how did they make a rattle? The rattles themselves are these interlocking hollow shells at the tip of the tail, and it's called like the button. That's the, I guess, the different interlocking portions. So I'm not exactly sure if like the whole rattle itself is called the button or just the tippy top is called the button. Okay. I think just the tippy top. But this is where it's a little bit confusing because this stuff does not, these don't come off. Like the rattle doesn't shed each time the snake molts. There's some sort of way that it, it, kind of stays like the rattle doesn't come off with the rest of the skin it's like sure stuck on the tip of the tail each time the snake molts inside these like hollow shells kind of a new button will form and i think as the snake molts i sound like i don't know what i'm talking about and i don't really 
That's why we're here, though, is to yes. discover and to learn new things. And it's to share true. What we've learned with our friends who've probably tuned out for the squamate moment. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, <laughs> we're into squamates. We're into artiodactyla squad. Oh, we're my like gosh. Are we it. ever? We so are. It's indeed. okay. It, it is, is okay. This is the central thesis of the show <laughs> is that when you're learning a new thing, you don't know everything right away. And when you try and communicate that, what you've learned you don't remember pieces of the information right it's why you should always actually trust experts yes i'm sure there's a wealth of information like youtube videos on this yeah anyway so for each molt essentially you've got the old button on top and then the new one formed inside of it Uh uh-huh and so it actually shrinks and it's those two things together the new inside the old that will create the rattle and then you've got like interlocking series of those. So each time a snake molts, like there's a new button added on top. Sure. You can't accurately correlate age with the amount of segments on the rattle. Okay. Because after enough time, they will fall off. Sure. Like say that they never fell off, then maybe you could accurately, like depending on how many times a year a particular species of snake will molt, like say it's like four times a year, and you have like a snake with, you know, like 28 segments. So that's a lot. You would safely say, okay, this snake may be like six, seven years old. Right. But you can't do that. You can't do that. Because it falls off. They'll fall off. Various things can happen. It's just not that. It's not like the rings of a tree. I guess that I just came up with a poem about the rattlesnake. I'm inspired by this button thing. Yeah. And it's, uh, the title of it is The Rattler. Okay. Something old, something new. If he bites me, I'll turn blue. Very good. Well, we can actually go on to um, talk about what happens when you get bitten <laughs> by one of these guys. Or we can talk venom for a little bit. A little venom talk? A little venom talk, venom corner. So their venom contains what's called proteoly- proteolytic enzymes. And so those destroy tissues. And in this case, it's blood vessels, blood cells, and even like muscles. So the venom is hemotoxic, so toxic to the blood. Jeez. It's cytotoxic, toxic to cells. Yeah. And myotoxic, toxic to like muscles and the cardiovascular system. Wow. Yeah. Um, so it can cause like severe muscle damage, severe internal bleeding at the like bite site. Um, you can get headache, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, diarrhea, dizziness, convulsions. Sounds great. And actually, babies are capable of, like, the fully venomous bite from day one. There is their venomous. That's incredible. Yeah. Because having read some and discussed some of these toxins before, mm-hmm. I think this is the most number of things that a toxin has done. Because usually it's, like, a cytotoxin right. or, like, something very specific or mm-hmm. a neurotoxin. Right. But this is just a toxic, toxic. It's, it's like, extra toxic. It's like a Britney Spears song. It is like a Britney Spears song. It's a Western Diamondback Rattlesnake song, but it's less toxic than other rattlesnakes. Uh-huh. But because of the way this particular species fang is designed and their large venom glands, they can deliver like a lot of venom in a single snake bite. Crazy. Yeah, which might be why these snakes are also known as fierce rattlesnakes. <laughs> I love the AKAs on this. Um, so we have like the adobe snake, the coon tail, the buzz tail, and then fierce rattlesnake. This snake is fierce. This snake is actually 
super fierce. So when you're looking out for these guys, I mean, obviously keep your ear out for that rattle. But you Uh can also look for dusty grays and browns, like the color of the ground. Sure. Which is not really that helpful. No. Um, (laughs) But so they have along their dorsal region on their backs – So you've got rectangular blotches that then kind of slowly morph into hexagonal blotches and then eventually take on that characteristic diamond shape, a.k.a. parallelogram shape. Um, And then the tail will have alternating black and white bands, which is why they've been called coon tails. Sure. Because they've got raccoon-like markings on their tails. Perfect. Um, And these guys, as they're reptiles, they're ectotherms which means that they will find a lot of heat externally. They don't really, they don't do a whole lot internally to, you know, elevate their own temperature. So they, these guys like to hang out on blacktop. They're like street snakes. Rattle, 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 rattle. Rattle, rattle. Let's play a game of Foursquare. They uh, do break dance on cardboard. <laughs> yeah, it's so cute. They just alternate between the asphalt and the cardboard. Exactly, exactly. Slither Dan. So what I find very weird and interesting is that these guys can live up to two years without food. Whoa. Right? Isn't that insane? Because they can, I think this goes along with being cold-blooded, is that they can, you know, decrease their energy expenditure by like 80% and just kind of hang out and take it very easy until they're able to replenish their fuel tanks. But when they do eat, they like to eat small mammals, small birds, other squamates, lizards, yeah, inner species or inner, inner squamate, inner squamate feeding, inner order eating. But they are also eaten by coyotes, hawks, and owls. So they're not immune out there, despite being pretty vicious, fierce predators. My question is, how do the animals eat this rattlesnake without the toxins in the venom of the rattlesnake poisoning that individual animal that's a really good question i have no idea i didn't even think of that thanks for opening up that line of inquiry mike i actually didn't even think about that but that would be like a really good thing to consider for all of our venomous and poisonous friends out there Sure. But to harken back, this just occurred to me. I think that the rattle is a form of that aposmatic signaling, remember, where it was like an animal's way of saying, I'm harmful and I'm going to do this thing that's going to warn you. In this case, it's going to be a sound as opposed to like a bright color or something that I might be dangerous and something you want to avoid. Right. I feel like I saw a sign recently. I don't know if it was a place I was or a photo of it regarding rattlesnakes. Mm -hmm. The rattlesnakes will not attack you if you don't bother them. They just want to be left alone. They really do. see one, just leave one alone Mm -hmm. and just keep going and you'll be fine. Yeah. That's what I said. They're pretty solitary. They just... Like you said, they want to be left alone. The rattle is there to warn you to get back. But you shouldn't be hearing the rattle in the first place unless you somehow like step on one unwittingly or whatever. But sure, yeah, they do not want to mess with you. They're not out to attack. An unwitting snake step. Yeah, don't do it. Be careful out there, everybody. Meredith, I did a moment of internet research. And we found that the serpentes are the suborder. Okay. And that they're in the clade ophidians. And the clade is a group of squamates. Okay. Which includes modern snakes, 
and all reptiles more closely related to snakes than those related to the other living groups of lizards. Okay. So it kind of separates out snakes and snake-like mm-hmm. creatures from other lizards. Got it. Because it seems like squamates might be one of those uh, orders where it's just so big and encompasses so many things that you've got to find ways to divide it Most within definitely. itself. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's really all I've got on the rattlesnake. I mean, the Western Diamondback rattlesnake, a.k.a. the fierce rattlesnake. (laughs) Well, I guess let's take a break. Let's do it. Hey, Patricia. Uh, what's that, um, sweatshirt you're wearing? Oh, this old thing? But actually, Percy... This literally is an old thing because it's the skin from an 82-year-old human man. It's not a sweatshirt. It's a skin shirt. Isn't it chic? Well, that's one word for it. I guess I'm just not sure why you'd want to cover up all of your beautiful scales. It's what makes us pangolins unique. Yeah, but they're also what makes us so desirable in the illegal animal trade, Percy. So I thought, why should King George have all the fun with his pangolin scale jacket? What if I want to wear a vest made of princess pelt or cute little slippers made from toddler feet? It's just a little morbid, Patricia. Actually, Percy, human skins for pangolins is just pure fashion. Well, where do you get these fashions? Human skins for pangolins are carried by fine morgues the world over, with plenty of shades, styles, and sizes suitable for pangolins of all persuasions. Get your own skin shirt today! Welcome to Sturdy Pet Names. Yeah, we are back, and we've got some sturdiness that we are ready to share with you. Absolutely. Meredith, do you want to go first? Sure. The first thing that came to mind was actually Hobbs okay. as a sturdy pet name. So this has a little bit of a story. So I was actually at this plant store called Plant Shed. Okay. It's on the Upper West Side. They've got like just gorgeous, gorgeous plants. It's a little pricey, but you know, they have great variety, really helpful staff. Sure. Um, it's off like the 96th Street one if you ever need plants. Oh, Check fun. it out. It's great. Or the 2-3. That's an express stop. Oh, yeah. So I was in there on one rainy day looking to buy a Dracaena friend for my window. Um, and there was a guy in there with this like fluffy ass dog. It was like a dude's dog. If you think like the size of a um, like a German Shepherd but fluffier. Almost. It was a little crazy. It looked like some sort of German Shepherd mix. I would go so far as to say like a German Shepherd chow mix. It was like a little crazy. Huh. This dog was super sweet and super friendly, cute for days. And I said, what's his name? And the guy was like, his name is Hobbs. I said, that's a sturdy pet name. It is a sturdy pet name. Yeah. And so I actually, the, the Dracaena that I bought that day, I named it Hobbs after this dog I met. Because this dog would just like made such an impact upon my on me and my day. I mean, Hobbs the Dracaena has since died. No, I know it's kind of a bummer because I've had not great luck with Dracaenas, unfortunately. Um, except for the one behind you, he seems to be doing okay. The one who I moved out, I slid over a little bit. So no, I could sit. he's the one that you moved the other plant into so that oh. you could sit. 
There's okay. two. There's two guys back there. Yeah, it's a lot of plants. I know. It's it's never too many plants. No. I do have a lot of them, but I love them all, and I. I'm so glad they're here. Yeah, they're great. Actually, both of those behind you I rescued from work. They brought them all in for just an event. They, right. Yeah, and then they just were, like, going to throw them away. I learned a lot about that when I worked on the Flower Street, what's left of the Flower District. Uh-huh. Because it just was insane, the amount of plants that they would just go through. And they'd bring them to events, but then when the event's over, the plant is... It's like a dispose. It's regarded like a disposable food item sort of thing. It's insane because, I mean, these could just be brightening up homes all over the place. Yeah, there should be some sort of secondary plant market. Absolutely. Or just a field where they're all deposited and people can just go pick them up and take them home. Word. But why do that when you can make money off of it? Capitalism. That's Hobbes. And I will always think of Hobbes. I love that. Yeah. Mine is a hypothetical pet name. I love these. So this is a pet name for a cat, like a house Mm, cat. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It doesn't need to be any particular breed of cat, but I think this is good for a cat with a little bit of spunk. Okay. And the name is Surprise with an exclamation point. That's funny. Because I feel like cats are the type of creatures where they will just surprise you. Yes. You will go from zero to just complete insanity because of the cat. You'll be sitting here doing nothing and then all of a sudden the cat will just appear on the table and you will be like, surprise, what are you doing? <laughs> I love that. And you could come up with fun things to say to your friends of like, it's never surprising that surprise is causing problems. I love this. Like a self-referential name. There's yes. like another like academic term for this and I'm forgetting what it is. Does it involve the word meta? It doesn't. I think it begins with an M though. I don't know. I don't remember. Proto. No, none of those. Post. Neo. No, none of that. I forget what it is. But yeah, it's like this self-referential thing. It's how I often feel about like the band Yes. The name of the band is exactly how I feel about the band. Yes. 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 It's perfect. So the cat's like exactly, the cat's name indicates exactly how you relate to that cat. Surprise. Surprise. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly I like that. That's a sturdy pet name. Yeah, well, I mean, hey, what did you expect? Pumpkin County, Northern Heart Chains. Here are some more sturdy pet names. Texana, you. Texana, we. Texana, who? Texana, me. Kingdom. Animalia. Creatures, creatures, creatures. Phylum. Cordata, spine times the right time. Class. Mammalia, they make milk yummy. Order. Ardeodactyla, even toad, undulate squad. Family. Giraffe day, long dark tongues. Genus. Ocapia, they like a Congolese forest. Species. Johnstoni, after Sir Harry Johnston. It's the Ocapia, it's not a giraffe. Get into it, it's awesome. <laughs> I love Ocapies. I knew you would. The genus is Ocapia. But the Okapi is the common name okay. for the Okapia Johnstoni, which is <laughs> Johnstoni. The only extant Okapia, and besides the giraffe, the only other extant member of the Giraffidae family. Okay. So you've got giraffes and Okapis. Yes. It used to be a pretty diverse biome moment. There used to be a lot of them. Ancient Giraffidae is a whole journey that a person can go through and I encourage them to if you're into paleontology. (laughs) But the Okapi was pretty unknown to us here in the West. 
until the 20th century. Pretty much what happened is when, you know, the British and all the other Europeans were dividing up Africa in the way that colonialism dictates that they must. <sighs> The British special commissioner in Uganda, Sir Harry Johnston, he had already read an account by Henry Morton Stanley of a sort of donkey that the natives called the Ati. Uh And he didn't see one himself, but he obtained pieces of striped skin and eventually a skull. The skull was used to classify the animal as giraffidae. And in 1901, the species was formally recognized. Nice. 1901. 1901. It's a medium-sized giraffid. It's about five feet at the shoulders. It has a significantly shorter neck than a giraffe proper. Yeah, definitely. It weighs between like 200 to 350 kilograms, which is like 440 to 770 pounds. Mm Mm-hmm. So on its hind legs, it has zebra-like stripes. Yes. And it looks like it's wearing long white gym socks. Yeah. And it has some zebra stripes on its front legs too. And then the rest of it is this sort of like chocolate reddish Yeah, it's a little like Rufus-y, it's right? Rufus-y. It's so pretty. It's gorgeous. But then the face, the throat, and the chest are all grayish white. Uh-huh. And it has these like big floppy ears. <sighs> And it's great camouflage against dense vegetation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The males have the ossicones, okay. which are those cute little horns yes. that you know giraffes have. Right. Well, the Alcapi have them too because they're also giraffe a day. I love it. And they're less than six inches in length. <laughs> Mike and- is putting little <laughs> finger ossicones up on his forehead. Yeah, it's kind of fun to pretend you're a giraffe. I do it too even though i'm a lady so i wouldn't have these but lady giraffes have them but lady okapis do not right okay interesting lady okapi are the only extant giraffe a day without ossicones look at you go Mm. (laughs) getting all that vocab in there yeah doing a very low stakes version of science it's quite (laughs) thrilling no i know the females tend to be a little taller actually by 1.7 inches sexual dimorphism doesn't usually work in that direction Mm -hmm. it tends to be that the males generally are larger yeah it's true copy ladies i know they're reclaiming their time. Yeah. <laughs> it is International Women's Day tomorrow. I oh. just have to say this because I've been using it, using it as an excuse for like everything. Yeah. And we're recording at the <laughs> last moment. So it was International Women's Day two days ago. No, no, no. It's tomorrow. Oh, oh, oh I see what you're saying. Yeah. No. Okay. I got Do you, you want me to mansplain to you how <laughs> <laughs> the release dates work? Would that be a good way to honor it? I figured it out on my own. Thank you very much. Fierce. Sometimes I just take a little bit more time. I, that's great. I would like to say that the female Okapi have hair whorls in lieu of the ossicones. So they have like a cute little hair moment. So I like that. Good way to celebrate International Women's Day. (laughs) Okapi lady hair swirls. Yeah. (laughs) And the thing is, is that it really looks more like a deer or maybe a bovid Mm -hmm. as opposed to a giraffe. For sure. Because when you think of the giraffe, you just think of that huge lurking neck thing. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't quite have that same vibe, you know? Right. I always thought they were like a little zebra-like. 
too. Yeah. The stripes and they kind of look horsey. They do you know? look horsey. Well, and this there was some confusion in the early taxonomy, and it was initially classified as equus. Okay. But we know that the equus are the parasodactyla, so they're the single-toed ungulates. So they're right. up on their middle fingers. They're not on their, like, split hoof thing. Right, exactly. You know? Uh, so I thought that was that was kind of crazy. They thought maybe it was a heliodotherium. Easy mistake. I would have yeah. made it, too. Yeah. <laughs> Which I guess brings us to our paleontology rabbit hole because there was so much giraffidae diversity in the Miocene epoch. <laughs> and sometimes the okapi is called a living fossil because it's been around for a relatively long geological time period and has a more primitive morphological vibe to it. I mean, do you have a sense of like how many years back we're talking? I just don't have my epochs memorized. <laughs> So the Miocene was 23 to 10 million years ago, okay? Holy shit. The Okapi we see about 18 million years ago, and then the giraffe about 12 million years ago. Wow. Yeah, it's split from the Samotherium. Okay. <laughs> this is, I'm telling you, the paleontology thing is so interesting because now we know all of these things. Yeah. And so you start to see these different characteristics and these different animals from over time. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you're like, we have an understanding of this and how this thing likely existed because of the skeleton of it. Because mm-hmm. we can say, well, these bones developed in the same way with this animal. So right. I think it's really interesting. Paleontology is fascinating. Absolutely. But it is also all educated guesses. Like mm-hmm. there fr- there's frequent revisions. There's mm-hmm. changes in all these things. The little paleontology swamp rabbit nest has been a <laughs> wonderful part of my animal fan club research journey. I love that. Well, actually, on the subject of this revision, in 2016, a genetic study found that the common ancestor of the giraffe and the akapi lived about 11 and a half million years ago. So then even wow. that would have been, I mean, that's from like 18 million years ago, 12 million years ago. One author is alleging they split, and then there's another footnoted moment suggesting that it was much more recent, but hmm. even still over 10 million years ago, but it's putting a finer date on it. We're dialing in this technology. Warping my mind. Yeah. Well, here's a fun anatomy fact. Just like their cousin, the giraffe, the Akapi only has seven cervical vertebrae. Crazy. So the giraffe, like all mammals, except manatees and sloths, have seven (laughs) cervical vertebrae. Yeah, and it's just the size that's different, right? Yeah, the size does matter. Definitely. So let's talk about the Akapi behavior. I would love nothing more. They're mostly diurnal, so that means they love the daytime, Mm -hmm. which is great. Who doesn't love a sunny day? Me too. I'm loving this sunny day. They're solitary. They'll only really come together to breed. Mm-hmm. Males have a home range of about five square miles or 13 square kilometers. And females have a home range of like a little less than between one and two square miles. Whoa. Three to five square kilometers. The males migrate continuously and the females are more sedentary. Okay. And then the males will mark their territories and bushes with urine, but the ladies will use a common defecation site. They're just so prim and proper. Yeah, they are quite prim and proper. They're way into grooming, and they seem to focus on their head and their ears. Me too. And they really love to rub their neck against trees, and it will frequently leave a brown exudate, 
which is a word that we encountered. It was the marmoset eating the exudates from the trees. Yes, yeah. So an exudate is just a generalized term to mean like a secretion. Right. So males will defend their territory, but females uh, are usually just allowed to pass through to forage. And then the males will go to the female's territory at breeding time. Mm-hmm. The ladies are sexually mature after 1.5 years. The men obviously take a little longer, two years. Mm-hmm. And when they're beginning courtship, they start with some circling. And then there's some smelling. <laughs> and then they start licking each other. Mm. And then the male will extend his neck, toss his head around, and protrude one leg forward. And then there's a series of mounting and copulation. Okay. I do like the one leg forward. It's nice, isn't it? Hello, lady. I extend my hoof to you. How cute. Milady, do you <laughs> accept my cloven hoof? Are you Dactylo Squad? <laughs> He's like, see, I am a member of Audiodactylo Squad. <laughs> gestation takes about 14 to 15 months. Mm-hmm. Birth takes. That's long. It's a long gestation period. Oh, it's over many? a year. The Birth can take three to four hours, and the lady stands the whole time. Yep. I know this about giraffes, actually, that the birth is actually very um, unruly, I would say. Like, the baby just, like, tumbles out and just falls to the ground because the giraffe mommy stands for it. What a world. And she'll consume the afterbirth. Mm. After birth, <laughs> and groom the infant quite extensively. Mm-hmm. Then her milk is rich in proteins, but it's low in fat, so it probably doesn't steam very well. Nope. The baby can stand up after like a half hour. Yeah. You know, like most. Similar to giraffes. Yeah. It's a little wobbly at first, but they get up. They do it. And they look very similar to the adults, but they have false eyelashes. <gasps> Just three oh ones. A long dorsal mane and long white hair in their stripes, like the white and black stripes. After about a year, like all those kind of unusual features disappear and they become Mm -hmm. more like adults. Yeah. The juveniles, they are kept in (laughs) hiding. And so the calves might not defecate for the first month or two, (laughs) which is hypothesized to be a way to avoid predator detection of like, oh, there's a baby here. Here's some baby poop. Oh, interesting. Isn't that interesting? Weaning takes place at six months. Horn development, ossicone development in males a year after birth. Mm-hmm. And their typical lifespan is 20 to 30 years. Get it. Mm-hmm. We have a limited set of vocal sounds. <gasps> There's a chuff, which is a contact call used by both sexes. Chuff. Which I think must be like... <gasps> yeah. <gasps> And then there's a moan by females during courtship. Oh. <laughs> uh, nice ossicones. Uh. Show me your help. And then the bleat made by the infants under stress. <laughs> <laughs> like a dolphin. <laughs> yeah, that's similar. And then we also have the femen response. The what? The femen, <laughs> F-I-E-H-M-E-N. Oh. When that happens, the animal curls back its upper lips, displaying the teeth <laughs> and inhales through the mouth and then holds the posture for a few seconds. <laughs> it helps draw air into a special gland so they can experience 
some scents and stuff. Okay. So we're just going to try it real quick. Okay. okay. Are you ready? Uh-huh. That's pretty fun. <laughs> it's done by horses. This picture that I have is of a horse doing it. Uh, and then I guess the last thing that I have to say is that this is an endangered creature. It's fully protected under the Congolese law. It is endemic to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Dr. Congo. Nice. I stole that. That's funny. North and east of the Congo River. It loves a canopy forest, 500 to 1,500 meters, like 1,600 to 5,000 feet above sea level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that they're really cute and that it's fun now. You have some fun ways to communicate, like an okapi, including a feminine response. <laughs> you do kind of feel like I just, I, I do feel a little bit more sense on the roof of my mouth when I do that. It's, I guess, yeah. if I had a gland there, that would be useful. It would be activated. I feel like Okapis, for whatever reason, I don't know why, have kind of been at like the top of my like celebrity animal list. Can I tell you a truth? Yeah. I was gonna do an echinoderm this week, but <gasps> I just ran out of steam and I didn't. They are okapi. tough. Echinoderm are tough. Look, I feel that. I feel that hard. I love that you did the okapi. Well, I thought of it because of your celebrity animal status. You were wrapped with attention the entire time I was listing okapi facts. <laughs> you were like a little girl reading Tiger Beat. Oh, um, that's what I'm saying. These guys are like my my Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Because I do remember this was a few years ago. I was in San Diego. So I took a solo trip to the San Diego Zoo, and um, which was kind of a big deal for me. Because it's the – I don't know if these rankings still stand, but it was – San Diego Zoo was number one. Cincinnati Zoo is number two in oh. the national rankings. Wow, you would know about the zoo rankings. Yeah, I know. I'm not at all surprised. <laughs> um, I don't know if that, I mean, that was like when I was a kid that that was the ranking. So it was like a bit of a pilgrimage for me to go experience the San Diego Zoo. And I was just by myself. I remember when I saw the Akapi exhibit, I took off running towards it. Because I was just so excited to see the Okapis. And I'm not sure why. I don't really remember what the, like, precipitating incident was that, like, put them onto my radar. But I also remember I had a moment in my eighth grade science class where I got so, so frustrated. Because we did this thing with, like, do you remember what, um like, a dichotomous key was? Do you remember ever doing stuff with those? In like a music theory concept? No, 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 In um, I think it's just like a means of finding an answer. In this case, we had a worksheet, okay? And it had all these pictures at the bottom of like strange animals. And I think like the pangolin was on there. The okapi was on there. Maybe even like an echidna monotreme squad. Yeah, monotreme squad. All these creatures that we probably wouldn't necessarily know what they were because they're so odd looking. So that we were trying to use what this thing that's called like a dichotomous key to figure out what this animal was. So it would be like, does your animal would have a question to be like, does your animal have stripes? Okay. And then it was like, if yes, go to like question whatever. Sure. And then you would like by process of um like through this deduction that you're led towards through these this series of questions you would get to what the animal is it's like once you go through this series of questions it'd be like does your animal have like ossicones for yeah. instance they'd be like then go to number five your animal's a no copy this worksheet was wrong because i knew exactly what no copy looked like and the dichotomous key led us to 
the wrong answer. It was just an incorrect worksheet that we had been given. And here I am, this like know-it-all little kid saying, this is wrong. This is absolutely wrong. Why would the worksheet be wrong? But it was wrong. And I like, of course, nobody believed me, but it was fucking wrong. Wow. Don't come in between Meredith and her Okapi knowledge. I mean, I didn't know most of what you just told me about Okapis, but I knew what they looked like. How old were you? 14. I love that. How old were you when you did the San Francisco, when you ran through the San Francisco Zoo to get to the Okapi? I was like 28, 29. Cool. I was 29. Yeah. Well, I think if I were providing some sort of psychoanalysis, (laughs) I would say that the strength of your love of the Okapi might be related to some sort of you know, angst-filled childhood <laughs> defense of the honor of the Okapi and yes. the misrepresentation and your need to shoulder this burden of the Okapi platform, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You got it. Nailed it. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should be a psychotherapist. But using animals mm. as your means of like getting there sure getting to the truth let's take a break yeah that's great it sounds like a fun spring summer activity sounds like a fun quarantine activity yeah maybe we'll be doing a lot of this in the days to come break time cream uses the ancient secret forest berry based formula to turn your crow's feet into gorgeous crow's wings to help your face flap skyward towards the life-giving warmth of the glowing flaxen sky disc. that smell i think it's oats oh you know what that means we're back in the feedback oh all right we've got questions georgette from augusta she wants to know why are donkeys so stubborn why are they so stubborn that's a great question georgette well they're they're kind of just a bunch of asses really (laughs) well there is that But it must be kind of hard to be, you know, like, actually designated as a beast of burden. Sure. If I had that, you know, mantle placed upon me, I'd probably be a little stubborn, too. I definitely feel like they are not given the same level of regality and 
you know respect yeah as like a horse i know we give so much cred to the horse so regal and majestic even cows are sacred in some cultures right but what about the low donkey yeah the donkey was in the manger when jesus was born yeah i don't think a horse could say that i don't know that a horse could say that i don't know if a horse was there or not we're riding upon a donkey a little family yeah, and then Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of biblical donkeyage. Yeah, a lot, um, of, a lot of ass in the Bible. A lot of, a lot of ass in that Bible. Um, yeah, I think Georgette, I would be pretty stubborn too if I were, you know, a, an animal that humans relied so heavily upon to do a lot of grunt work, and then I'm called a beast of burden. Yeah, and the name for me, the ass, becomes a slang expression, a, a derogatory term. Yeah. I think that's the only real animal swear crossover. There's not yeah. a fuck bug or a <laughs> shit beetle or a <laughs> shit beetles. Bastard. Well, there are pigeon. shark farts. Wait, stop everything. What's a shark fart? It's just something you can say when you're frustrated. Ah, shark farts. Okay. Sorry, Georgette. I don't know. Cartilaginous flatulence. <laughs> Cartilaginous. Drick can fart these. That's a little. That's a little taxonomy humor. Yeah, I love, that's my favorite kind of humor. It turns out. Um, but yeah, I think we should call them beasts of valor. Okay. And then maybe we'll see how the donkey's attitude changes. So I guess the answer to Georgette's question is because Brand Clubby has only recently started this rebranding campaign of yes. the donkey as a beast of valor, and we haven't quite seen the results of it in the general donkey population yet. Right. Stay tuned, Georgette. Yeah. Cool. Ding, 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 ding. ding, ding. Um, next we get a mate pair feed upon from Pierre in Paris. Bonjour. Bonjour, Pierre. Mi amour. What a great Parisian name you have. Ooh, he's drawn upon some past episodes for these mate pair feed upons, with the exception of the skunk. So we've got a skunk, we've got a wolf eel, and we've got a death nail beetle. What do we think? Okay, mate, pair, feed upon. Mm. I mean, I guess I'm feeling like pairing with a wolf eel would be kind of nice. I had that same thought. But we were like talking about, we did that commercial for Brand Clubby with the- Wolf eel thruples. Yeah, the wolf eel thruple. But those are rare. Just keep that in mind. That's not a that's not a frequent thing. I feel like a thruple is a lot of work. It is a lot of work, yeah. I feel like it's right for a lot of people, though, honestly. And sure. as as a grown gay man, I have to say that I understand these sort of, like, amorphous relationships that people have in a way where it's like, I'm an adult and I'm way different than I was 10 years ago. Sure. And, like, people kind of go through these phases. So I get, I'm not closed off to this, like, wolf eel thruple lifestyle, I guess. Right. But, like, I don't know. I feel like maybe being paired to a wolf eel would be kind of cool. Well, you've got that cave for life. Well, until the octopus landlord evicts you. Right. But I don't know. I, I That was my first thought, too, when I saw this. Because, like, the wolf eel, it's relationship goals, you know? 
Yeah. The two of them just hang out in their cave together. You know, chomping crabs. God, it sounds pretty great. Yeah, I think I'm okay with that one. Okay. I would say that I would want to mate with the death knell beetle because I feel like it's low commitment. Uh-huh. It's like just kind of a, you know, hit it and quit it sort of situation. Sure, sure. And then like they're not going to hit you up for anything later because like they're going to die because they're only alive in beetle form for like a couple months. You right. Know? So right. I feel like that's a pretty low-risk, like, NSA situation. Sure. And it's probably illegal to mate, do any sort of mating with, like, a larva. Probably. Yeah, I mean, I that's going to be more of a commitment issue because they're, like, larva for, what, like a decade, was it? Yeah, about. And honestly, though, I just feel like larvae have nothing to talk about. Right. They have no life experience. Yeah. They're just so juvenile and shallow. Yeah. I agree. I need at least a little bit of pillow talk. Sure, sure. I agree. So mate with the death knell beetle. And then that leaves the skunk to feed upon. And, you know, I have heard that skunk's skunk meat is actually, like, more delicate than chicken. I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a Pierre sort of skunk question, I guess. (laughs) Maybe it's the same Pierre. Uh Uh-oh. Pierre, is this a leading question? But uh, I think we're in agreement. We're going to mate with the death knell beetle. Yes. We're going to pair with the wolf eel. We're going to feed upon the skunk. The skunk. Ding, ding, dun. Ding, ding, and done. <laughs> ding, ding, done. All right. So our last question comes from Casper in Cleveland. And he asks, does the undulate squad of the cetacean nation have any desire to wear shoes? I mean, what would that be, like fin covers? Or are we talking like converse at the tips of their fins, which is kind of fun. So it's asking if the, if with, okay, I understand the question now. Cetacean Nation, any desire to wear shoes? Fin covers, fluke covers. Yeah, what do we feel about fluke covers? Okay, here's how I feel about this. (laughs) I was a Boy Scout. Okay. Back before they declared bankruptcy. And I remember that anytime you fell off a boat or you went into the water or you had any sort of water crisis, because they would essentially prepare you for these crises. They'd be like, right. if this happens, this is what you do. Right. Okay. The very first thing that they would say, take off your shoes. So I just feel like if I were some sort of porpoise, mm-hmm. that... I would find shoes to be an encumbrance and I'm probably already dealing with enough like microplastics that I don't need macroplastics on my feet. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Thin feet. Thin footed friends. That's just Pinopedia. What great insight, Mike. Yeah. Well, I would also say the Pinopedia probably don't want to wear shoes. I would say in general, aquatic mammals are not shoe friendly. Maybe a like strappy sandal or yeah. like, a, like a water moccasin, perhaps? Sure. But even then, I just... You know, I, I'm i very pro beach shoe, just because I'm, like, kind of afraid stepping on weird things in the ocean. Sure. I don't think our cetacean friends are doing any walking. No, they're swimming. They're paddling. Yeah, they're not, like, mammals that traverse the floor. Of the- right. They don't have to worry about, like, stepping on a crab or anything like that. Yeah. yeah, Mike, I'm in full agreement with you. I think that's a very enlightened answer. Yeah. Well, Casper, the answer is that no. No, they have Cetacean no desire. Nation, no desire to wear shoes. All right. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding, We did it. Yeah. Keep those questions coming. Animal Fan Club Pod at gmail.com. 
Oh, it's a rattlesnake. I know that as long as I leave that rattler alone, he will not bother me. Absolutely. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the animal family.